you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, so thankful for what Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We're so thankful that we've been raised with him through faith. That we who are dead in our trespasses, the uncircumcision in our flesh, you made alive together with Christ, forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. Lord, help us to never lose our awe of that reality. Strengthen our understanding of our desperate need for forgiveness. Help us to see that as so glorious. Increase our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Help us to love what you love, hate what you hate. And Lord, we're in desperate need of you to continue to do that work in us. Lord, we also lift up this last hour and we ask that you give us strength. It's hot out. You would help us to, uh, to persevere, that we would learn those things you would have us learn. Uh, and we ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. <clears throat> Another case study for you here to kick, kick off this last session. Introduce you to Leah. I'm going to introduce you to, 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 to two ladies here. Uh, Leah is a teenager. Her mom's on meds. And her mom wants her to stay on meds. She's also been abused. The mother is abusive. Uh, her parents' marriage is on the rocks, then divorced. She, she's described as having anxiety attacks, bipolar, outbursts of anger. Is there hope that this young girl in that kind of situation that I described, kind of an awful home life, is there hope that this young girl can change and not turn out like her mother? That's one. Another one is Sally. She's struggled with depression for years. She's in her 30s, controlled by her emotions as long as she can remember. Wherever emotions go, that's where she goes. If emotions are high one day, she goes high. If they're low, she goes low. She just struggles through life, day in, day out, during the first session with just, not, not tears in her eyes, but just kind of like a, just a worn out look going, ask the question, do you think that I, do you really think that I can change, that, that I won't always be struggling in this same way that I've been struggling for the last 20 years? It's important that the people that we meet with, we meet with whether, they're, whether we're in a discipleship relation or something formal, that they have hope. That they have hope. And how can we help instill hope? What is hope? Webster's defines hope as a desire of some good accompanied with an expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it is obtainable, an expectation of something which is thought to be desirable. Synonyms, confidence, pleasing expectancy. It's actually pretty decent for a pagan book, right? Not bad. So can we have hope? Can we have an expectation? Do we have an expectation that Leah and Sally can change? Yes, absolutely. 
Uh, in fact, uh, since they're both believers, we can have a confident expectation or a, an assurance that they can and will change. That's biblical hope, confident expectation. Uh, the world has kind of a hope-so hope, kind of wishful thinking, typically how the word is used in English. Well, I hope that it doesn't, I hope that we get rain, right, in the Black Hills. We say in, in Louisville, I hope that it doesn't rain this week. You all say, we hope that it rains, meaning, you know, I'm wishing, wishing that it would. That's not how the Bible talks about hope. The Christian has a confident expectation. They have a confident expectation that they will change. The noun in, in, in uh, the Hebrew language to describe hope, and there, there's several, but one is tohelet, means hope, expectation, indicates the hope which a person exercises. So hope is a confusing kind of concept in Scripture, really, when you start studying it. And uh, hopefully, the world's hope, hopefully, after this session, uh, if I don't accomplish anything else, uh, you go back and you start reading your Bible and paying attention to where hope comes up in the scriptures and, and how it's being used. So one is, it indicates the hope which a person exercises, the object of which a person hopes, which one hopes, or the basis on which one hopes, right? It indicates the hope which a person exercises. They are hoping the object of which one hopes or the place of hope and the basis of which one hopes. It's used those different ways. So the Christian exercises hope by believing that they can change. The object of their hope is the promises of God, that they can change. The basis on that hope is the character of God, would be kind of a way to look at it. Uh, the verb in Hebrew is shabar, to inspect, to wait, to hope. One form of it means to inspect. Both forms convey the idea of expectation that something will prove true or reliable, right? The expectation that something will prove true or reliable. But as we can see, that the noun and the verb are both talking to a confident expectation. So I think that, that if you've heard that before, that that's the biblical definition, that's, that's a good one. Confident expectation. The object of our hope, confident expectation, produces a confident expectation. Uh, the promises of God, the object of our hope, cause us to hope. So biblical hope is closely related to Faith. So I think you could say, speaking of the verb that faith produces hope, we could say hope is the exercise of faith. If I've confused you, just know they're often interchangeable. A lot of times we would be more accurate reading the text and we, see, we come to the place where it says hope and insert faith, that would probably help us a little bit in our language. But hope, so that's hope. More we could say on that, but hopefully that's enough. Confident expectation. Hope is powerful, and I would submit to you necessary for change. So that's our, our lecture title, Hope for Change. Why, why people need hope, that's a question I'm going to answer here, first of all. And I just want to look at some texts, and I'll summarize it at the end. You can write them down, look at them later, but I'm going to go fairly quick. Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Among other things, hope there is an anchor that keeps the soul. People need an anchor? I bet you they do. That's what hope will provide. 
1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Hope keeps us from inordinate and excessive sorrow. Is that a counseling issue? Yeah. Yeah, it is. 2 Corinthians 3.12, for if what was to an end came will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Hope produces boldness, produces courage. Do the people that we meet with need courage in certain situations? Yeah, they do. Proverbs 10, 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Hope produces gladness, produces joy. Does the, the, does the depressed person need hope? Do they need joy? Hope produces that joy. Romans 5, 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope helps us handle tribulation in a productive way. And I could go through all these texts. Galatians 5.5, 5, hope produces patience. Does an angry person need patience? 2 Corinthians 4.8 through 18, hope helps us not be overwhelmed by severe difficulties and trials. 1 John 3.2, Hope produces holiness. It produces an aversion to sin. First Thessalonians 1.3, hope produces perseverance and steadfastness. On and on we could go saying what hope produces and why people need hope if they're going to change. So according to these passages, if a person has a strong hope, it's gonna have an incredibly positive impact on the way he lives and the way he handles trials in his life. Point of all that is that hope is necessary for change. People that we're meeting with, they need hope. So let me give you six reasons why Leah and Sally can hope for change. If hope is necessary for change, how do we help them get hope? And here's six biblical reasons why they can hope for change. So first, they can hope for change because God is the one who saves and sanctifies. Kind of talked about some of these things, but we'll mention it again. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. I gotta read this to you. Hopefully you know these. I want to do Ezekiel 36, 26. God says to his people, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hebrews 8 10 says, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord, I'll put my laws into their minds, their heart, and write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they should be my people. God understood what they really needed was a new heart, a new, a new capacity to, to think, believe, desire, and want the things of the Lord. Re regeneration is hope. Regeneration is just receiving a new heart. God does that at the moment of salvation. He gives us a new heart. That's what is needed. That new heart, brothers and sisters, is change, right? The gospel is change. Titus 2, 11 through 12. Turn with me on this one. This is a really important one for biblical counseling. I love this text, so encouraging. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Good verse to, to memorize. Comes after. 
First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, squeezed in there. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Awesome passage. But I just want to look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God has appeared, saving us. So the grace of God saves us, verse 12, trains us. The grace of God trains us. The power of God, the gospel, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. People that we're meeting with, they need to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. They need to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. God's grace saves us and it trains us. It does both of those. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 13. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Peter 1.3, we talked about it last week. We need to have these hope texts in our counseling toolbox. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Colossians 1.22. Go to 1.21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Does it in the gospel at the moment of salvation, we are, we are fully sanctified, courts of heaven. Here, practically, we're on a track to being sanctified, what Kyle talked about, progressive sanctification. But God has promised to change his people. We can have hope to change there. I like to think of it uh, as uh, moving sidewalks at the airport. I don't know where else they have them except the airport. You know, and they're usually, they're going different directions. Okay, before salvation, you were on the one moving sidewalk going the wrong way. Colossians 1 says... That, that God picked us up from the domain of darkness, that domain, that was the one going this way, and put us on in, into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's going the other direction, the right way. He places us on that. That's salvation. We're in a different kingdom. It's done. It's irreversible. There we are. But it's a moving sidewalk, and it's taken us to perfection. Amen? We can't get off this sidewalk. We can, you know, it's going like this, we can look in the mirror, because they always have a mirror there for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's there so that I can do the perfect moonwalk. It, you know, and I can be like going backwards on it. So, you know, we can fight against the spirit in our lives and go backwards and walk backwards and stay in some place, or even if we run, but in this, this moving sidewalk, you're never going to get to the end of it, right? You're still going to be, God's going to have his way. He's going to wear you out, and eventually you're going to be like moving along down towards perfection. Or you can run down towards that end, but either way, you can't get off the moving God will have his way in you. And that's what those texts are saying, Christian. He's going to have his way in you. You will change and you are changing. Jay Adams said, everywhere the scriptures either demand change or assume its possibility. Hope and counseling belongs primarily, therefore, to the Christian counselor. Using the Bible, he knows that God is in the business of changing lives. Every change that God promises is possible. Every quality that God requires in his redeemed children can be attained. That's some hope. Lee, Leah and Sally can count on that. Second point, hope for change because it's not about you, about, about Christ. 
Uh, let's look at Revelation 5, 1 through 14. Maybe I'll just read part of it, right? You got the, the scene of the throne room. Um, who is worthy? The, the, the loud voice goes out to open the scroll and break its seals. No one's found worthy. John starts crying. The elder says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I love that description of Christ. In between the throne room and the four living creatures and among the, the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So Jesus, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. No objections. Father allows him to have it. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, are, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and people and our language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and might and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. They're praising Jesus in the Father's presence who all over Isaiah, but in Isaiah 42, he says, my glory, I'll share it with nobody. But here they're worshiping Jesus and the Father allows us to go on. <clears throat> Christ is and will be glorified. Amen. Colossians 1.23, another awesome text. Twenty-one twenty-three. read it earlier. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, so on and so forth. Jesus is the one who accomplished all this by his death. He's going to be glorified. Philippians 2.9 says of Christ, his humility, what he accomplished on, in his person and his work, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Isaiah 45, 23, those same words are used to the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is God. We see it right there. Do you doubt that Jesus Christ will be glorified and exalted? Anybody in here doubt that Jesus Christ is glorified and will be glorified? I don't see any hands going up. Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of our union with Christ, we're going to change because of his glory. So because of his glory, we are assured that we're going to change. Does that make sense? Think of it, you know, the son of a king. The son reflects either good or, or bad upon the father in his realm. Well, Christ is highly exalted, perfectly reflecting glory upon the Father. You, Christian, you bear his name. You must change for sake of his glory, and you will change. 
Proverbs 19, 13 says, a foolish son is ruined to his father. <clears throat> Not gonna happen as you're connected to Christ. He will be glorified in you. You're not stuck looking at pornography. You're not stuck in sinful anger or controlled by your feelings. And if you're in him, then it is necessary for Christ's glory that you change. And you will because Christ's glory demands it. He's not gonna be denied his glory. So there's hope to change because of Christ's glory. It's not all about you. There's other things going on than, than, than you. That's my point. Similarly, along the lines is hope for change because of the indwelling spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or whether or with regard to festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by sensuous mind, not holding fast for, to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Chapter three, if then you, verse one, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Romans 8, 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, the spirit in us is going to see to it because holiness requires it. The, we're... We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is going to see to it because he can't dwell in that state. And so that's where we're, we're, we're seeing that clash in conviction of sin. Christ is our life. So the Spirit lives in us. The purity of Christ requires that we change. The Spirit will produce life. Okay, as I mentioned the last hour, our goal is not good behavior or purity or to stop smoking. Those goals are all too low. They're, they're secondary goals, goals, transgenderary goals maybe. Our goal is to spread his fame and his glory in word and deed. That's, that's our goal. Our goal is to exalt Christ, produce the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. That is change. Spirit lives in us, producing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is change. If the Spirit lives in you, you will change. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As you grow in being controlled by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, that's what that, those terms are kind of interchangeable, you will change. That's why they call it the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit's in you producing this. If the Spirit lives in you, then you're going to change from being angry to kind, being self-centered to being other or, or others-oriented, Christ-centered. The Spirit will have his way in you. You will change. So we can hope for change because the Spirit lives in us. Fourth, we can hope for change because God promises to change his people. In addition to all the other texts that I mentioned, ones that I mentioned last night, Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours. We have this need, that Titus 2, 11 through 12 passage. God says the grace of God saves us and trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Those are all counseling issues. 
You can hope for change for that. Philippians 1.6, he who began a work in you will bring it to completion. Talking about glorification, but glorification when Christ returns is not disconnected from us moving in, in that direction on that moving sidewalk at the moment of salvation when we've been switched, you know, those moving sidewalks. Joshua 21.45 says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Brothers and sisters, God keeps his promises. Not one is gonna fail. You will change. He does not lie. God has said it, you will change. We can hope for change because God promises to change his people. Fifth, we can hope for change because God has changed people in the past. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that, I better read it. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. You might think your problem is unique. It's not unique. God has changed you. I mean, God has changed others. People who have been in your same situation, God has changed them. Guarantee it. That's encouraging. Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I love 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1, you better have down if you want to do some counseling. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, past tense. But, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. God is in the business of changing people he has changed other believers in the past. Read Christian biographies and you're going to see it. John Newton. <clears throat> see how he changed him. The author of Amazing Grace. Used to be a slave ship owner. Uh, uh, blasphemer. Changed him. God has changed. He's in the business of changing people. He can change you. You're not a special case. And you will change. There's a Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is a hope-filled worldview. Uh, to illustrate this, I'll read uh, to you this account from J. Adams' book, Theology of Christian Counseling, about the Toccoa Falls Dam tragedy in 1977. Uh, when Toccoa Falls dams broke, dam broke, flooding the Toccoa Falls Bible Institute and drowning 39 persons, many of whom were children, the government sent psychologists to help the survivors. Their help was rejected as, an un, as unwanted and unnecessary. Robert... Robert Nuttall, a psychologist himself, reported that the experience had changed the way government researchers viewed the aftermath of natural disasters. He continued saying that the Christians at Tokoa, who had suffered the loss of loved ones, were in better mental health than other communities we studied, who, for the most part, were not hit as hard. Their very strong religious commitment gave them an understanding and an explanation for what had happened to them, which the people in the other communities did not have. Because of Tokoa, we had to change our theory about psychological reaction to disaster to include cultural values. The Christian worldview is a hope-filled worldview, and it's true. Again, not the world's hope-so-hope, 
but a confident expectation, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. That's, that's our, our worldview. That is, that is the Christian's meta-narrative. We win in the end. I've read the end of the book, as people say. We win in the end. You could look at Ephesians you know, 1, 3 through 14. I'm not going to go into that for sake of time, but we have an inheritance that is, that is guaranteed for us, sealed by the, the Holy Spirit. It, it's a done deal. We're just, you know, it, it's already done. We're just moving towards that direction, but the victory's already been declared. We just now have to walk in that victory. You can change because hope for change is embedded in the Christian worldview. And I would submit to you that being hopeless is sinful. And when we are that, we need to repent. I'm not going to say that the first session to someone who's struggling in a tragedy, right? But if I see that they have no hope, you know, that they're not understanding that they need to be hope-filled, at some point, I need to help them go, look, you're, you're thinking and you're believing are all wrong. And so repentance is simply just turning from that wrong thinking and turning this way, right? Repentance isn't a four-letter word. People think it is. It's not. It's a joyful word. It's a hope-filled word. Repentance is hope. We could, I mean, I'm just giving you some of this, but it, we could go on for, for days. All right. <clears throat> so how do we do this? How do we instill hope? That's the basis of our hope, right? Basically, some of it. I'm going to give you seven ways we can instill hope and hope these are encouraging to you. One of the counselor's tasks, privileges, is to instill hope in their counselees. Here are seven ways we can do this. First, teach them the truth about change, what I just said. Go through those texts. The person who looked at me and said, is there, I mean, do you think that I actually can change? You've heard my story, all these things. We spent a couple hours just listening, a couple hours. Those first two sessions, I might spend four hours of listening to their story, asking questions. What, you know, you, you marked this. You, you struggle with depression. What do you mean by that? What did it look like? I'm going deep. First assignment I gave her, I changed it up. I gave her all these hope texts to look up. What do you think? You tell me next time. How to memorize some. I have memorization in all my homework assignments because it helps them meditate on the word. People in our society want to dip the tea bag, like we said. They just want to, you know, dip in the tea bag, read in God's word, dip the tea bag. No, you're not going to get anything. They need to let it marinate. Memorizing scripture is one way I try to help force them to meditate. It's not always, not always the outcome that I want, but it is the only thing I know how to get them to meditate. Maybe journaling. There's other things I have them do, but that's one way. I review everything that I just mentioned. I teach that to them. Second, we remind them how they have already begun to and have changed, right? So we look at ourselves in the mirror. If you look at yourself in the mirror, you're like, I don't really feel like I'm getting older. But then I see a picture from 10 years ago, and I'm like, whoa, what happened? You know, there's this little thing that they have now with technology. You can take a picture, say, of your kids, and they'll turn it into this kind of like little bright light looking sort of thing. You might have that bright light. You plug these things in. But it's like plugged in little pixels, little plastic pins, you know, and, uh, and it turns out to be a photograph of your, whatever, your, your child. Well, if I look at it right here, it, it's just like all different, can't even see what's going on. So I kind of have to go back like 15 feet and I look at it, and there it is, 
we need to help the people that we're ministering to, we need to help them see that they're changing. They're looking at themselves in the mirror every day. They, they got a view like this. And some people are more prone to be like this than other people. Those people in particular, we need to help them zoom out. Help them see how, they, how, how they've changed. Encourage them. Say, look, just think back, Christian, where you were 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. Are you the same person? Are you struggling with the same kinds of sins? I don't think so. I'm not. I look back 25 years ago and I'm like, good. My thinking, my desires in life, my goals in life have completely changed. I was living for my own glory. And I didn't see a problem with it. I wasn't ever taught that that was wrong of me. I don't know what, what the deal was there, but, and it was easy for me to, me to, me to make decisions. Whatever, whatever you know, uh, brought me the most glory, that was the decision I made. That was easy. But then when I started going, okay, what brings God glory? That, that was a little harder because then it had to deal with some heart struggles, right? But we want to help them see how they've changed. If you've met with them a couple months, help them see that. Encourage them in that. That gives them hope. Uh, third, we preach the gospel to them and have them learn to preach the gospel to themselves. We remind them over and over again, it's not your performance that saves you, but Christ's. Hallelujah. If it was our performance that saved us, none of us would be saved. Milton Vincent's book, A Gospel Primer, commend it to you. They have it out in the foyer, I think, for sale. Excellent book to, to help with this. He writes, the gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God, a standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. Always, right? I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. The gospel is hope. So we want to put the gospel before them every session somehow. Same as when I preach, I want to put the gospel before the congregation somehow. Fourth, we pray for them and with them. Another way we instill hope. James 4.2, you don't have because you don't ask. God, help them to love what you love and hate what you hate. Strengthen, strengthen their faith. Give them a love for Jesus Christ. Fan and inflame a zeal for him. That gives them hope because you're praying for them and with them. Because prayer changes people. So when they hear me pray for them that, that they change in a particular area, Lord, they don't fear, fear you as they ought to. Help them to fear you properly. That gives them hope because guess what? God answers our prayers. He does. Prayer does change things. It does. Fifth, we seek to encourage them. We do that by practicing the one, one another commands on them, by bearing their burden. Create this environment where, each, where the church is bearing each other's burdens so they're not walking this path alone. That's going to give them hope. Oh, I got other people that are actually going to remind me to read my Bible when they see me on Sunday morning, they're going to find some time to ask, so what, what's the Lord been teaching you lately? Right? They're, they're going to go past the surface. I can't just, I can't coast in this church. Right? There's a certain person in this congregation that's got the reputation of asking these kind of detailed questions. She's not going to let you off the hook. Hallelujah for people like that. Be that person. Ask something other than, how's the weather? Ask them. They're here. They're here for a reason. They want something spiritual. Church isn't a social club. Don't let it be a social club. That's up to you. It'll be one if you let it. 
Hey, how about those Yankees? Wow, it was a great game. That's all you talk about. Throw, you know, lob, you know, lob one of those out there. What's the Lord been teaching you lately? It's not hard. Bear their burden. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. That produces hope. Sixth, we hold them accountable to change. We hold them accountable. One of the means of change is the church, Christian fellowship and accountability. First Thessalonians 5.14 again, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Let none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. You're not gonna do that with everybody in your church, but do it with three people, especially with texting. I didn't have text here for eight years. I didn't have a smartphone. But when we moved to Louisville, that was the first thing they did is they bought me they made me do that. The, I mean, literally, I was not even there three days, and they took me to the, to the store, got me a smartphone. I was like, and there's some people that want to give me a trophy because I made it that long in life without having a smartphone. <laughs> but, you know, now you can text it. How are you doing? Praying for you. How can I be praying for you? I do that with the congregation here. They get some random texts from me. How can I be praying for you? And then repentance is hope. That's not one of the points here, but repentance is hope, as I mentioned earlier. Hold, holding people accountable to change, it gives hope. Seventh, we help them know God. That gives them hope. Obviously, we could talk all day on this one. Discipleship counseling is a hope-instilling philosophy of ministry. It's not counselor, counselee, no interface. It's one brother or sister who is a filthy sinner coming alongside another brother and sister who's a filthy sinner, helping them, directing them to where they've received some hope and some encouragement. That's, that's what it is. They're not the authority. God's word is the authority. Help them develop a, a vital relationship with God. That gives them hope. The church is a hope-instilling factory if they're faithful. Help them to begin a relationship with God, share the gospel, help them to develop a deeper and more meaningful relationship with God. Help them make the scriptures relevant to their situation. Help them correct their erroneous concepts of God. Help them focus on the attributes of God that are most relevant for the issues at hand. Help them become aware of a potential and possibilities for good uh, that the problem may bring. Help them to look at it differently. Help them understand true goals in life. All of the all of the categories of the heart chart. Help them to think right. And when, they, when you see that their thinking is wrong, help them to understand where it's wrong in Scripture. When they're confessing a belief, but then not actually believing it, help them to see that. A lot of people believe that, that God is in control of all things, that he is benevolently sovereign until something really hard hits their life and that goes out the window, right? Help them to truly believe it. The, uh, Every, every time I, I get to this, it just makes me cry. This church helped me to truly believe the sovereignty of God, not just give it lip service. And, I, and I, I'm seeing Barbara Hay, sorry. Uh, but when Ian passed away, she lived it. And it, it, it has really encouraged me so much, right? That's the body of Christ. Dan, with his, with his kidney failure, uh, that, that's hope-filled, right? We, I, I knew it. I could write a, a paper on it, but... 
I, didn't, I don't know that I really trusted God, right? So we want to help them see where there's a, a disconnect in their confessional theology and their practical theology. All right. Um, helping them study the Bible, consistently praying for them, helping them identify and confess their own sin. All of these things. Um, the entire process of biblical counseling from beginning to end instills, instills hope. Um, Leah, things we did with her we, to instill hope is we met with her. Held her accountable to studying God's word. Help her understand the gospel and the biblical heart. That instilled hope. We bore her burdens <clears throat> by sitting down with her. Your trouble is my trouble now. I'm stuck with it, just like you're stuck with it. That encouraged her. Nobody ever done. We listened to her. We wept when she wept. And we prayed with her. Taught her about God's benevolent sovereignty. She didn't even, she didn't even know what the Bible taught her. Not. How can she believe it? Taught her about her true identity in Jesus Christ. She hoped for change and her hope did not disappoint. She's doing well. <clears throat> a sweet, godly lady that you would look at and go, that should not be. Look at her home life, train wreck, uh, train wreck. It shouldn't be. But there it is. No panic attacks, explosion of anger, hard aware, loves the word against all odds, right? And, you know, and like Kyle said, there's other failures. Typically, they'll just stop counseling or switch churches or, you know, something like that. So there are those, but I'm trying to encourage you all. And I have more of this, these success stories than I do failures, actually, by God's grace. It's his word, right? Sally, um, she needed to hear everything I just mentioned, and I taught her all those things, which is kind of where a lot of this lecture came from that. She needed hope that it was possible for her to change, even though it felt like she had never changed. So I had to help her go, don't trust what you're feeling, Trust what the text says. That's, that's the life of faith. Believing without seeing. That's the life of faith. The process is ongoing with her. But her hope, I know, will not disappoint. All right, that's it. Anybody have any questions about giving hope and what our responsibility is there and how we can do that? Any questions on, yeah, Ron? That's definitely a first session Well, <clears throat> it depends. Um, I don't have it listed as a first session. I mean, I'm always giving them some hope, right? Yeah, first session, I'm always going to share with them 2 Peter 1.3, Philippians 4.19, Philippians 1.6, Titus 2, 11 to 12. I might not go in, I'm not going to go in as deep as I did here or like I did with, with uh, Sally but I am going to touch on it briefly to encourage them that, that they can change, yeah. But there are some people that need, that need a, a larger dose of hope than other people. And then that's going to look differently. That's going to be maybe a couple sessions or something that we're kind of touching on for a fraction of our time each, each session. Yeah. But definitely a little bit at least, I'm saving some time that first session to do that. First, you know, to teach on the heart, because I'm going to assign them a journal 
where they record all that stuff, and then a little bit of time to help them, and to, help them uh, to encourage them that they, that they will and can change. Yeah, good point. Any, any other questions? Yeah. Their hope becomes in me. Yeah. yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm Moses, right? And then I've screwed up. I've done something wrong. So how do I fix that? Um, well, the homeworks help. My demeanor, how I'm talking with them. I'm always pointing them to the scripture, not to me. I have other people involved who are helping mentor them while we're meeting, right? I'm, I'm pointing them to their small group leaders, uh, to other, you know, if they're ladies, to ladies groups that they're meeting with, guys that they're, guys that they're meeting with. So I, and, I, and I'm also sharing with them my own struggles, which is taboo for secular counseling. So, right, I mean, I might not have experienced the same exact thing, but there's some parts of that because I got the same sin problem, you know. Uh, and, and for me, I've struggled with depression I'm prone towards that. I can be more feeling-oriented, and so the people that I counsel that are really feeling-oriented, I can identify with that somewhat, and so I can sympathize and empathize, and I'll share with them, you know, some of my struggles there. So I take myself off the pedestal, so to speak, and, and typically that doesn't become the case. You know, after we spend so much time, they're not really impressed with me, and that's good. I want them to be impressed with Christ. And you might have already gotten a dose of that this weekend. So there you go. What was the other question? That was pretty much the follow-up. Okay. Yeah. You know, and really I'm getting them to study the word. And I'm also telling them from, from early on that, look, we're not going to be meeting forever. I'm not your shrink. I'm your brother in Christ. So there's going to come a time we're going to trickle down. We're going to start meeting. If we're meeting weekly, we're going to meet every other week. And then if you're doing well and a lot of carnage, carnage isn't happening in between meetings, then we'll spread it out to, to monthly. We'll do that for a couple months. If you're still doing good then, then I'll have you uh, fill out your own spiritual growth plan for six months. What you're going to be doing daily, weekly, monthly, spiritual disciplines, it's their chance to give themselves their own homeworks so they can take some of the things that I taught upon the means of grace, not on me. So I'm getting them dependent upon the means of grace by that. And I'm telling them, look, we're not going to meet forever. And so then at the end of that six months, I'll have them meet with somebody in that six-month time frame where they'll go over a book together. And then at the end, then I'll meet with them again just to follow up. We had someone who wasn't in our church. I don't do this very often because I'm so overloaded, but we had a family connection, met with them. They weren't a member of a local church. I finally just had to say, look, I'm, I, I, you can't be dependent upon me. You need to get involved in a local church. You need to find a pastor. I can't be your pastor when I'm not your pastor. So, you know, those are conversations you have to have, and that was hard. Um, and they're still not a member of a local church, so I'm concerned for them. But I needed to force them to do that. But I think, I think teaching them that they need to rely on the means of grace, and fellowship is one of them. So we are dependent upon each other, but I'm just not the only one. And so I, I help them get other people in, in their lives. And that's part of that six-month spiritual growth plan is getting them dependent upon other fellowship of other people. But we are dependent upon each other. That is a means of grace. We're dependent upon prayer. We're dependent upon scripture. Great question. 
Any other questions about anything or on this session? Wonderful. I'll hang out afterwards if you have questions that you're just, you had fear, man, and you didn't want to come up and ask me about it. And I have some resources for you and those sort of things. And then I'll answer your questions. I think that we're going to sing right now. says, see to it that no one takes you captive.